Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today, on an all-new Dr. Phil. Who knew his in-laws didn't like him? I was called every name in the book. But he had no idea they wanted him dead. You bend down and he shoots you in the back of the head. My in-laws tried to kill me. The place is wrapped in plastic. He said, well, we're painting. It's clearly a killing chamber. There was a grave that had been dug for you. Why did he want you dead? Let's do it. Why don't we stop all the drama, stop all the fighting, and let's go get you better. Here we go. Have a good show, everybody. If I can help get this family back on track, are you willing to do that? Ready, great. Okay. This is going to be a changing day in your life. Go, Dr. Bell. Once in a while, I come across a story so bizarre, so unbelievable, I think to myself that it just can't possibly be true. No one can be that evil. No one can be that diabolical. But just listen to what happened to young Ramon. Now, he was a star athlete, a two-time state wrestling champion, when he met his high school sweetheart, the love of his life. They got married, they had a beautiful baby boy. They were young, in love, and had their whole lives ahead of them. But it didn't take long for their fairy tale romance to turn into a real life horror story. I met my wife Shalane in 2009 when I was competing at a wrestling match. A few months after we got engaged, I found out that she was pregnant. Instead of waiting, we would go ahead and just get married sooner. It wasn't a very long time after we got engaged that things took a turn for the worst. After I finished high school, I had a horrendous time finding work. I had no other option but to move in with my in-laws. Her family felt like they needed to dictate every aspect of my life. Shalane's mother was verbally abusive to everyone. The verbal abuse that I saw her suffering at the hands of her parents was what drove me to be with her. I felt like I could save her, like I could fix things, like I could rescue this woman, and it didn't work out that way. Once I got established into the family, I became the scapegoat. I was called I was called every name in the book. It was hell on earth. I decided that my relationship with my wife needed to end. I knew that it wasn't going to work, and I knew that it would be the death of me if I stayed there. Well, things quickly went from bad to worse, and a bitter feud between Ramon and his wife and his in-laws ensued. But no one could have ever predicted what happened next. I went to pick up my son that day and Shalane's father met me at the door. He asked me to take my son through the garage for him because he'd smashed his hand and he had it covered up in a sling. So I went ahead and took my son through the garage and turned around to leave. And they had put plastic all over the inside of the garage. 
because they told me that they were painting. Shalane's father said, before you leave, can you pick up these little wood plugs that I dropped on the floor? I stooped down to pick these up, and he puts a gun to the back of my head and shoots me right in the head. I mean, it hits me right in the back of the head, and I stand up and I go, what the f I just, I couldn't believe it. He raises his arm like he's gonna take a swing at me, and I just kind of threw him. He fell over and the sling came off of his arm and I could see that he had a gun, and so it, it all registered then and clicked in my mind what had happened, and I decided that I needed to just get out of there. He ratted off a couple more shots at me, and he hit me once, and it was down in, a, in my hip, and it kind of stunned me for a half second. I kind of took a stutter step, so I had to unlock this door with, with him still shooting at me. After I got out the door, I had made my way to the highway, I flagged someone down, and they went and got help, and here we are. I, That's what they all do. I Seriously, now, you're married to their daughter. Yeah. Did you have any indication that these people were capable of trying to murder you? I... It surprised me, really. It, um, my first thought that went through my head was, was who does that? I mean, that's, that's what I was thinking as I sprinted toward the door. You had lived there for a while, but then moved out. You said if you stayed there, it would have been the death of you. What did you mean by that? Not necessarily the physical death. I didn't realize that that, that had a literal meaning until this all happened, but I could not be who I was. I had to withdraw just to, just to exist. So you move out, but your wife remains with your son. And so you're visiting because you want to see your son, of course. And on this particular day, you're, you're there and you're about to leave, and he says, help me with something in the garage. You say, okay. You go out there, the place is wrapped in plastic. What did you think when you saw that? I kind of looked around and he said, well, we're, we're painting. Uh, and I guess I, I didn't see any reason not to believe him. So I just, <clears throat> I just walked through like nothing. Walked through like nothing. He says, help me get something out from under a workbench, right? Yeah. So you bend down to do that. Yeah. And he shoots you in the back of the head. I, I don't believe it either. It, it, it's, uh, I just stood up and... Why aren't you dead? That's what I want to know. What, well, what did they tell you? What did, the, what, what did they tell you at the hospital? What did the doctors tell they you? All, they all did that same thing. They just kind of looked at me and go, kid, I, I don't know what to even say. I mean, did they, they had to remove the bullet, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they... What he was aiming for was what's, it's a, it's a famous uh, mobster hit shot. He actually used a, a 25, which, is, which was designed for that purpose. They're not a real stout round. They have just enough powder to go into the skull, but not out the front, so it's really clean and really easy to not make a mess. And uh, if you see where the mark was, he was aiming for the base of the skull so that it would go in and sever the spinal cord, which is just a clean and instant, instant kill. But... Um, he was, a, he was an inch or two off, and so it, it actually hit, like, the thickest part of the skull, one of the thickest parts. All right, so he shoots you again. 
Yeah, he uh, he rats off a couple more shots, <clears throat> and uh, they found three casings in there. Uh, I've got I've got two bullets, one one I'm still carrying, and one they got they removed. Why did he want you dead? You know that's that's really what I wanted to ask you. I I cannot <laughs> I I don't know. I I really don't know. I, I assume he wanted you out of the way. Uh. I guess. They lure you into what's clearly a killing chamber. That, that's what all of this plastic is for that they've got draped around there. As the research started coming out, I found out that they put so much planning into this that it was, it's like the stuff you see in Hollywood, but actually, it actually happened. They dug a, they dug a, a big hole, actually big enough to bury the car. They were gonna, uh, they thought about actually just throwing the whole vehicle in there. Did you know at the time that he had had a criminal history? That was the the difficult part. The, the family had actually told me that something happened 25 years ago, but what they told me was him and his wife got in a scuffle, and she fell and hit the sink, and I, I didn't have a reason not to believe him. I mean, it sounded reasonable <clears throat> to me, and I'd come to find out that wasn't even, that wasn't even remotely the truth. Well, what was the truth? Not, this was not a, she slipped and hit the sink. This man beat her into hamburger. I mean, uh, there was so much bruising up and down all over her body and so much blood splatter in the house. They went, you know those little UV lights they go and try to scan the walls? They had a handprint from this woman that went down the front door where she was trying to... So he beat his wife to death and he went to prison for it. Served time. And wrapped her up, disposed of the body, got out of prison eventually, then shot you in the head, planned on wrapping you in plastic, burying you. Now he's in prison for that. Now you're here for a reason because you face a new challenge. Uh, we're going to talk about that when we come back. His in-laws are behind bars for plotting to kill him. But he says that didn't stop them from trying again. Plus, why does Ramon believe his son might actually be in danger now? Talk about all that when we come back. It was hard for me to believe that he'd actually shot me. I poured my heart and soul into the woman, and I feel like this is the ultimate act of betrayal. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. It was hard for me to believe that he'd actually shot me. I poured my heart and soul into the woman, and I feel like this is the ultimate act of betrayal. Well, that was Ramon, whose bitter custody battle with his ex-wife led to her parents trying to kill him. Now, Ramon just narrowly escaped with his life. Now, after his in-laws were convicted and sent to prison for trying to murder Ramon, uh, he thought he was finally safe, right? They're in prison. Well, he says he couldn't have been more wrong.
Between the time that the shooting happened and the trial, somebody had come up to my house in the middle of the night where I was staying, and they had unscrewed the gas cap and stuffed rags in there and lit them on fire. It looked to me like they had attempted to blow up the vehicle and the house by proxy because it was so close. Do you have any idea who did that, who was involved? Well, I, I don't want <clears throat> to muddy up a... a prosecution by giving you details well, but don't, they, they do have a they okay. do have a suspect now don't answer anything that I, I don't want you to run any red lights here because uh, I don't want to jeopardize anything but you have an idea who was involved and do you think it's associated with your in-laws in some way can you answer that I yes it's it's very clearly associated with my in-laws uh, joining us is deputy district attorney uh, uh, for the county, uh, Michael Dugan, and he prosecuted the case against Erlene and Lester uh, Reger. Am I pronouncing that right, Reger? Reger. Reger. Um, so, uh, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Uh, at, at this point, uh, what kind of time are, are these folks doing? I assume they're gone for a long time. Well, um, Earl Rigger was convicted of attempted aggravated murder and conspiracy to commit aggravated murder because he had a prior homicide conviction. He's doing 130 months in prison. In Oregon, it's a mandatory minimum sentence. He got 10 months added to the 120 for his felon in possession of a firearm. All right. Um, Erlene is only doing 90 months. Okay. Wow. That doesn't seem like a lot. Given try, shooting somebody in the back of the head. Well, it does not seem uh, very much for this type of crime. This is this is a horrible crime. The planning, the death chamber, uh, it was horrible, uh, and they might have got away with it, uh, but for some just weird circumstance. Did, I assume they pled not guilty. Uh, they absolutely did plead not guilty. They had trials. What, what was the defense? Well, <clears throat> Erlene, uh, her defense was, I didn't do it. I didn't know anything about it. Not me. It was all Earl. Uh, Earl's defense was even weirder. Um, in that death chamber garage, there was a co-conspirator, uh, John Fritz, and he testified for the state. And he testified just as Ramon said. But Earl's defense was, I'm a hero. Ramon came at me with a gun. I disarmed him and shot him. And that's what I did. Well, so he said he had... Uh, Ramon attacked him with a gun. That's what he said. Did, did Charlene testify? Charlene did not testify. Uh, did, when you were in the hospital, did she come see you? No. You asked uh, Ramon why they did this, and uh, my perspective is this. Erlene got a divorce from her first husband. He was in the Navy, forward deployed, had two children. Uh, when he'd come back to visit, she was a uh, terror and wouldn't let him visit. He had to go to court, and hit her lawyer finally convinced her that he'll go away. Just let him have visitation. I know these people. He'll go away. And eventually he did. That same lawyer represented Shailene. And they told that family again, Ramon will go away. Just Ramon will go away. Quit making these false police reports. Quit doing this. He'll go away. Ramon wouldn't. He wanted to be a father. He wanted to be a father to his son. He was proud of, of having that. And that lawyer created such a, a devastating uh, divorce decree. He had to bring the child home at a certain time. If he's 15 minutes late, he couldn't get the visitation the next time. If he showed up 15 minutes early, he couldn't get the visitation. He had to park on the street. He couldn't park in their driveway. Um, he had to tell them what adults would be present wherever he went. If he didn't tell them that, uh, 
the, these people would call the police and have the police go and try to arrest him. It was horrible. We're going to take a break. Next, his ex-wife's parents attempted to kill him in cold blood, but she still has custody of their son. Why does Ramon believe his son might be in danger now? We'll be right back. The shooting ended the turmoil with Shalane's parents, but it's pretty clear to me that there were more conspirators in this than were put in jail. I'm always looking over my shoulder. I can't leave a drink unattended because somebody's going to poison it when I walk out. Since the shooting, I don't want to call it paranoid, but I have experienced certain ticks. I really don't like when people stand over me now. I, if someone stands behind me, I'm always looking over my shoulder. When I'm in a classroom, I always have to sit to the rear. I can't sit up in the front. I can't leave a drink unattended in a room because somebody's going to poison it when I walk out. And I know it's not real, but it still kind of registers back there in the back of my mind. So the shooting ended the turmoil with Shalane's parents, but the custody over our son has not changed. It's more bitter and more emotionally charged since that day. She had absolutely no empathy. She still is trying to keep me out of my son's life. Well, Ramon survived being shot twice in an execution-style plot concocted and carried out by his wife's parents. You're fighting for custody now to, for your rights to see the child. And um, we invited your ex-wife to come to the show. She declined. We contacted her attorney. And he declined on behalf of his client. Uh, but he did send a, a letter. As part of the letter, um, there is a statement. Like most lawyers, I would rather try my client's case in a courtroom before an experienced and highly qualified judge rather than on television. There has been quite enough of that already. The party's two-and-a-half-year-old son is entitled to this. Rather than seeking publicity at every opportunity, Mr. Fry would find it in the best interest of all concerned if he were to obtain full-time employment and keep it rather than multiple part-time, short-term jobs. Establish and maintain a stable home rather than bouncing around as he has. Make meaningful progress on his post-high school education rather than hit-and-miss curriculum, which he has been pursuing. Regularly pay his meager child support rather than finding excuses not to pay, and in good faith obey court orders rather than assuming court orders apply only to others. What do you think about what he had to say? None of this is even true. I mean meaningful progress on his post high school education i'm i'm uh, i'm in college right now i'm registered with another school to take an emt course so that i can become a paramedic i was just sitting here wondering if maybe he forgot you got shot in the head that's that's another thing i had it in my mind that she was going to be indicted you know, I, I was preparing to take custody of my son and disobeying court orders i i failed to see where what he's well, he actually gave us a number and said you should call the court and check this out because he's in contempt of a few court orders, and, and we, we actually did that. We, we called the court, and they said that you needed to uh, provide some medical records that you hadn't provided yet, and that was what you were in violation of, that you need to bring him some papers. Okay. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. I want to be very clear. 
she was not charged with anything, right? She, she was not. There's no evidence of any wrongdoing on her part sufficient to bring charges, so I certainly don't want to suggest that there is. Now, Shalane still has full custody of Ramon Jr., so we ask uh, a, a friend to the show here. He and I sometimes argue till hell wouldn't have it, but I have great respect uh, for this gentleman. His name is Mel Fight. Uh, he is founder of the National Center uh, for Men, a National Center for Men. I asked him to join us. So uh, via satellite, Mel is here. Mel, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Mel, you've been listening. What do you have to say to Ramon here? Um, you know, I think if someone shoots you in the head and you survive, um, and then you have the courage to continue to fight for your child, at that point, from that point forward, you should enjoy a very strong presumption that you will be a great dad. And it should take an awful lot of evidence to overcome that presumption. I, 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 I do not understand for the life of me why, at the very least, this man is not having shared parenting, joint physical custody. Ramon, the, the, the key to success here, you have to do two things. First, you have to stay focused. When you talk to the judge, everything that you say to the court from now on is that you're a dad fighting for your child, and that's all that matters. The other thing you have to do is be persistent. Persistence pays off here. A lot of men go into family courts, and they mistakenly believe that the obstacles cannot be overcome, and I am here to tell you that they can be overcome, that the truth will ultimately prevail. So stay focused and be persistent. Those who hang in and persist are the ones that win out. Don't be the one that goes away. Hang in. Show up for the hearings. Meet the requirements. Just continue to put one foot in front of the other. And when they realize you ain't going away, then pretty soon you do win out. Correct, Mel? Persistence, 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 and focus, focus, focus. I'm certain that if, if she were here and if uh, Mr. Taggart were here, there would be a whole other side to this, and so I, I want to say that, you know, your side of this uh, are allegations. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to paint her in a negative light with her not here to defend herself, despite the fact that we invited her to be here. She's not here, so uh, I guess I'm taking up for her in saying that she's not here to defend herself, but I, I, like Mel, um, you know, I, I think the fact that You've overcome what you've overcome. You've, you've had done to you what's been done to you. And the fact that somebody's taken your inventory and say, well, I don't think you're educating yourself fast enough, and I don't think you're working diligently enough. Uh, I think the fact that you're vertical and continuing uh, to pursue your role as a father and continuing to work to be a contributing member of this society instead of laying back and uh, uh, playing the victim role, is something that you should be proud of, and I, I certainly wish you the best, my friend. Thank you, Dr. All right. In Ramon's story, the police were there to help him and put the criminal behind bars. But what happens when the cops turn out to be the bad guys? We're going to talk to four women from sunny California beach town who were preyed upon by a man sworn to protect them. We'll be right back. Anthony Arevalos used his authority as an officer to solicit sexual favors during traffic stops. He was immediately creepy. He asked me if I was wearing a bra. 
In Melissa W.'s case, Arevalo said he would not arrest her if he showed him her breasts and allowed him to put his hand down her pants. When he entered my house, it took it to a whole other level. They are sworn to serve and protect and to stand in the gap and to uphold the law. And 99% of the time, that is exactly what they do, and I thank them every time I see them on the street. But in this next story, the cop was the criminal, and that is so sad because it taints so many men and women who do a good job. Take a look. Former San Diego police officer accused of trying to elicit sexual favors from women during traffic stops is charged with 18 counts involving five women. He put his hand down in my pants while he was handcuffing me and said, easy, easy, you're in good hands. Anthony Arevalos used his authority as an officer to solicit sexual favors during traffic stops. The night that Arevalos pulled me over was the worst night of my life. In Melissa W.'s case, Arevalo said he would not arrest her if he showed him her breasts and allowed him to put his hand down her pants. A jury convicted Arevalos on eight counts of sexual assault and battery involving five women. I think Arevalos is a predator and he's a very disgusting man. As for whether Arevalos is remorseful for his actions... I think he's sorry he got caught. I don't feel like he's remorseful and I don't think he was considering how... Adversely, any of his actions were going to affect his family or the people involved. Revelos was fired from the police force when charges were originally filed against him. He is currently serving a nearly nine-year sentence in state prison. Well, joining me now is Melissa. Uh, Marjan, Lacey, and Talia are here in the audience. The attorney in the civil suit against the city of San Diego, who represented several of the victims, Dan Gillian, is also here. Now... Melissa, through all of this, um, this is the first time that you have chosen to come out and show your face. Tell me why now, why here? Sorry. It's okay. Take your time. Um, you know, I think that um, people largely expect victims to act a certain way and to um, remain anonymous and hide their faces. And, you know, maybe it's time to let go and move on. But um, even though it's over, I still feel judged and um, I've read nasty things about myself and some of the other victims. And, you know, it's, I kind of don't want to be out in the public eye just because I don't want to be judged. I really want you to give yourself permission to have some peace about this. Because, you know, I, I think there are all kinds of ways that people can get victimized. But you know, in our society, we have certain icons in our society, right? If you're in trouble, where do you go? You go to a policeman, you go to a fireman. If you're hurt, you go to a hospital. You know you're going to get protection and care. And when somebody uses that to, in fact, create harm, to, in fact, prey upon someone, that's the ultimate violation. Definitely. Um, 
What happened the night that you were pulled over? I mean, take us through that so we understand. Because I want to talk, I, I want this to be a cautionary tale for people that you can talk to us about what could have been done differently, what you would tell people if they get caught in, this, in a situation like this. A girlfriend from back home was um, in town visiting and asked if I would come meet up with her. And we went to a local bar and had a couple of drinks. Um, couldn't have been there for more than an hour, hour and a half. And we left and walked around town for a little bit. And then I got in my vehicle to leave. And within moments, I was pulled over. You said you sat at a stop sign too long? Yes, that's correct. So he just pulled you over. What made you feel uncomfortable first? Um, I began crying. And he said, oh, you know, don't cry. Or you're too pretty to cry. Um, you know, for, let's not pretend that I'm a police officer. We're just two people. We're just two friends talking. Tell me why I shouldn't arrest you. Tell me about yourself. So he began to ask, you know, personal questions. And he said, let me ask you something. Are your breasts real? And from that moment on, I knew this wasn't a typical traffic stop. Did he threaten you? Um... Like I said, he, he, you know, he asked a series of perverse questions, you know, about my breasts. Um, had I ever done any kind of modeling or wet t-shirt contests? Asked if I was well manicured everywhere. Um, and would just teeter back and forth between, you know, I'm your friend, let's talk about this, tell me why I shouldn't arrest you, to then using his authority saying, well, you know, if can't come up with something, I guess I'm going to have to arrest you if we can't come up with an agreement. Did he start to touch you there um, at the scene? At one point, uh, you know, he was trying to give me a breathalyzer, and I said, I'm, I'm not going to take your breathalyzer. Um, and he was handi holding one of those handheld uh, breathalyzer devices, and uh, the way he was <clears throat> crouched down next to me, he had his index finger extended off the device and uh, was holding it up against my chest and massaging, saying, can you feel that? Does that feel good? To which I replied, no, it actually kind of hurts. Did you ever say, look, just give me a ticket and let me go? I didn't say that. I said, let me get in a cab and just go, which is eventually what happened. You were scared to get a DUI because you were, because of your school situation. That's correct. So how did this end? How did you get, how, how did this episode end? Um, eventually he said, if I just flashed him my breasts and let him stick his hand down my pants, that he would let me go. And that's exactly what he did. And he stuck his hand on the front of my pants and moved his hand from the front to the back several times. And then um, took out his flashlight and uh, flagged me a cab from the distance. So you left your car there, got in the cab, and, and went home? Yes. What did you think when you drove away? I immediately called my boyfriend and said, you're never going to believe what happened. I just never thought I'd be believed. You know, I didn't think he was just having a one-off day where this was the first time he ever did it and the last time he'd ever do it. Um, I had a feeling this was probably something that this person did. 
and it was probably four or five months later where I got a text message from a girlfriend saying, is this your guy? And it had a link, and I clicked on the link, and sure enough, his face and name just popped off the screen, and I said, that's him. You knew it right away. I knew it. All right, let's take a break. He was convicted and brought to justice, but these women say they are still struggling with the painful memories of what he did to them. We'll be right back. Well, San Diego police officer Anthony Arevalos was convicted of preying on young women and at least one man offering to turn his head the other way in return for sexual favors. When you saw this, it was because someone else had been victimized as well, right? When somebody, when it, when it popped up and somebody called you, they said, look at this guy, because somebody had reported it, right? Yes. And so you reported it at that point. Yes. Um, now, Marjan is here. Um, this had happened to you in a somewhat similar fashion, right? Yes. Tell me what happened when you encountered him uh, from the time he pulled you over. Um, he pulled me over and instantly he asked me to get out of the car. Um, and I get out of the car, he pulled me to the side. My sister was sitting in the car still. He was um, constantly asking questions like, oh, where are you from? You guys are so pretty and things like that. He was taking his time and asking me questions, and at that point, I'm just crying. I don't know what to say. He hadn't done anything to me until he was handcuffing me. Um, he put one handcuff on me, and the other hand, I wasn't giving it to him, so he put his hand down in my pants, and he said, easy, easy, you're in good hands. At that point, I knew what, I was, what he's going to do with me, so I just gave my hand to him, and he handcuffed me. But when he put me in the car, he grabbed my breast and pushed me into his car. Dan, <laughs> what, how do you make sense of this? I mean, how, Well, you know, he's a criminal. Uh, he's a predator, and he was abusing his authority, his weapon, um, his badge. But he was a criminal, and, and you know, I, I, I believe, too, that the majority of the police force are honorable men. But uh, there is no way to make sense of what this police officer did to these women, all these women, other than to saying he was an evil criminal. Um, and he happened to um, be wearing a badge and a gun for way too long. As you guys know, I mean, this is very difficult for you to talk about today, and I'm so glad that you are because, listen, this will save a lot of women a lot of hell by you're willing to talk about this, you're willing to talk about this, because it still affects you today. I'm so sorry that this has happened to you and you've not been in a relationship since this happened. Yes. So it causes you to kind of go behind a wall and Marjan, that's not fair. I mean, the pain this causes is ridiculous. I really started to get scared. He was immediately creepy. When he entered my house, it took it to a whole nother level. My best friend and I, Talia, were pulled over by Anthony Arevalos. We were definitely on his radar. He came up to the car and he said, have you been drinking tonight? So then he asked Talia to get out of the car. He took me not behind my car, but all the way behind his car. That was my first real intuition something was really wrong. 
he was back doing the field sobriety test with him for over an hour. I went to get back in the car. He said, I have to write you a ticket. I can't let you drive. I'll just take you guys home. When he dropped us off, he said, do you guys by chance have any water? And I said, yes, I will bring you one. I had opened the fridge. I turned around and he was standing on the left-hand side of me. Let himself right in. I really started to get scared. He was immediately creepy. He started making comments about Talia's boobs and her butt. And then he asked me if I was wearing a bra, asking us if we liked older men. When he entered my house, it took it to a whole nother level. I was really shocked. This felt like really like helpless. When he left, I said, we need to move. You're Talia, right, and Lacey. You guys were together. He actually stopped you guys and and insisted to take you home and actually came inside your dwelling, went inside your apartment, correct? Yes. And, and what do you do? Two young women, and here's this guy with a gun and a badge inside your apartment. I mean, come on. What did you think was going to happen? I was trying to just be smart about it. I didn't want... I wanted to be tactical. Like, Melissa was saying this is the first time we've heard other, other girls' stories, so it's, the similarities are uncanny, but he would teeter-totter between trying to be a friend and not, so I didn't want to make him angry. He's a giant man that knows where we live with a gun um, and wouldn't leave, and I also just wanted him to go, so it was a... I was just trying to do it peacefully so that he would leave without harm. And you two were, you were there, right? Yeah, we were both together. I was absolutely shocked. He actually took the ticket that he wrote, Talia, and he ripped it up into about 10 or 15 pieces in our kitchen. And he took it with both hands and he threw it up in the air and threw the ticket up in the air and said, I just made it rain a misdemeanor in your kitchen. All right, we've got to take a break. Next, my advice for victims, even if your story hasn't played out in the media. We'll be right back. You know, before the break, I told you that I'd have some advice for victims. Find someone to talk with. I can't tell you how many times victims have come forward and the first thing they say is, I had no idea that I wasn't the only one. And if, if you're in a situation like this, don't blame yourself. Don't feel guilty. You've got to allow yourself to feel the pain, it's okay. Write it down, keep a journal. You've got to take care of your mind, you've got to take care of your body. If something's happened to you, come on, you, you have to fight back. And you have to reestablish a normal routine. And maybe it's a new normal for you. you you've gotta take care of your body and, and you've gotta get back to some sense of normalcy. You gotta get back to exercising, doing things where you don't just withdraw from life. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to not just kind of get in an emotionally fetal position. You've got to put one foot in front of the other and get back out there. Let this be a cautionary tale. Don't let yourself be taken advantage of in this way. But most importantly, reach out to someone. Tell somebody what's going on. You're not alone. Thank you guys for coming here and talking about this. I really want to thank Deputy District Attorney Michael Dugan. Thank you so much, Michael. Dan Gillian, thank you so much. And a special thanks to uh, men's rights advocate Mel Fight. Uh, for more information on this show and others, visit drphil.com. Thanks so much.
Today it is with great sadness and a heavy heart that I pay tribute to one of my good friends and a highly esteemed member of our advisory board who passed away recently. Dr. John Royce was one of the most distinguished professionals in the field of clinical psychology. He worked extensively in the area of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and spent many years devoted to the training and development of young psychologists. At the time of his passing, he was Professor Emeritus at the National Crime Victims and Research Center in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina and was the co-director of the Psychology Consortium Internship Program at the MUSC Veterans Administration Medical Center from 1972 to 1994. He also received the Fundamentals of Patient Care by a Faculty Teacher Award for meritorious service. Now, Dr. Royce served on our advisory board for five years consulting with me and helping our producers with integral research and valuable input on various subjects. His contributions to some of our more sensitive stories proved invaluable and his extensive experience, passion, and enthusiasm helped drive many of our important campaigns. He is survived by his mother, Viviana Royce, his wife, Pamela, his sister, Rosemary Sullivan, and his children, Kristen Small, Frederick Royce, and Carla Swain. John was much appreciated for his contribution to the Dr. Phil Show, and he will be dearly missed. John, we thank you for all you've done for so many.